The Lodge by Robert McMinn Chapter 5 As a teacher, I was well used to extended periods of time at or away from home, so it didn't really start to feel like something different until September when the summer vacation ended. In the meantime, it felt like being on holiday, apart from all the unpacking which did drag on. There was some furniture to assemble, some rooms to decorate, a kitchen to bring up to my own personal code, and the boxes and boxes of personal effects to deal with. A pile began to grow in one of the bedrooms on the top floor, just underneath the hatch to the loft crawl space of cardboard boxes we couldn't be bothered to empty. The books were easy enough, just take out great handfuls of them and thump them onto the bookshelves. We decided to use the library for this, although we tacitly agreed to call the library The Study, which made it sound less exalted. That created a dilemma, because the beautiful gothic shelves all around the study were already packed with those dusty, leather-bound books. Here's the thing, though. Although I appreciate history and heritage as much as the next person, I believe that life is for the living and that a house should be a home, not a museum. You'll be interested in what was already in there, I'm sure. There was a set of 30 volumes of an encyclopedia, the Metropolitana, which seemed to date from the early 19th century. There was a complete set of Shakespeare's plays, also Dickens, Byron, Wordsworth. A lot of these matching sets still had uncut pages and had clearly never been read. There was a set of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and many other histories and collections of that ilk. I was fairly certain that a lot of the books were collectibles, first editions and so on. I was interested in looking at the typefaces. One of the things that can make a book collectible might be that it's the first use of a particular typeface. There was a collection of wonderful arts and crafts books, so not everything already on the shelves was destined to be put away, but a lot of it was. What we did was empty a box of our books and basically replace them with the equivalent number of books from the shelves. We tended to choose the anonymous brown covers, the sets with uncut pages, those that had clearly been bought as a job lot by some previous owner in order to make the shelves look full. I must say, it was nice to replace the dusty old antiques with brightly coloured modern paperbacks and hardbacks, books that had actually been read. Once each cardboard box was filled, we sealed it, labelled it, and took it up to the box room to await elevation to the exalted space of the loft. I've never kept my books in any kind of order, being a great believer in serendipity, so I wasn't precious about alphabetising or genre. Of course, the flip side to that lackadaisical attitude is that when I want a particular book, for some reason I have to start at the top left of the first shelf and look through the whole lot until I find said book. I'd been in the unfortunate position of having to keep my books double deep on the shelves in our old home, meaning that the searching involved moving the front row along in order to search the back row. But for the first time in my life I had more than enough bookshelves and it was wonderfully liberating to have them all out. I was almost moved to think of alphabetizing them and as wonderful as this gothic study, library, space was, it felt good to be bringing it up to date with a modern selection. It was bad enough for me that the house was listed, meaning we were severely limited as to what we could actually do with the building. I didn't want to leave the whole place looking like one of those stately homes. The whole thought of that kind of thing 
double stacked books, I mean, makes me shudder now. And I was about to enter a phase of life where I seemed to be searching for things constantly. As I said, you never quite recover from a house move. I mean, what is archaeology other than people from the future finding things that people lost or threw away in the past? The kitchen equipment was straightforward enough. There was a pot and utensil hanging rack, something I'd never had before, and the kitchen was old-fashioned enough to have lots of freestanding units rather than fitted cupboards. I always say that the classic floor-to-ceiling fitted kitchen is wanted by someone who cares about tidiness more than cooking, whereas what a cook wants is to be able to put their hands on what they need when they need it without bending over or reaching up to hunt through a cupboard. So a nice central hanging rack over a workspace island was great to have, and it was such a boon to have all my equipment within easy reach. I'd had a certain set of very expensive saucepans for over 35 years without ever making use of their ability to hang up. But the rest, which consisted of an inventory of stuff, we treated less urgently. Here we're often talking about the contents of drawers, the kind you have to hunt through to find the extending tape measure, or the battery charger, or the adapter for some long-forgotten electronic device, the spare light bulbs, fuses, sticky tape, blank DVDs, various leads and wires, clothes brushes, spare ink cartridges for both printers and pens, and so on. An endless list of household and personal items that never really have a home, and so get chucked in various drawers. They have a value, and you need them sometimes, but most of the time you do not. Bit like a car, really. Mine, by the way, we'd sold, so we were down to the one car, officially registered as belonging to Grace, which even so spent 90% of its time parked on the driveway. And none of the cruft in those drawers is particularly important until that Bluetooth speaker goes flat and you need to charge it or you need an envelope or you throw a light switch and the bulb goes ping. So the boxes were building up in that unused bedroom and eventually it fell to me to open the hatch, pull down the ladder, I was pleased to see incorporated, and go up to have a look. I was hoping that Grace's uncle or somebody in the past 50 years or so had wired up the loft so there was a light up there, but no such luck. It was dark, and it was big. Inevitably then, the first job was to hunt through the boxes to find the torch. Now, Grace is very organised and she definitely would not allow the packing of a box without the labelling of the box, even if it was simply kitchen drawer 3, so actually it was fairly straightforward to find the torch because I remembered which drawer it had been in at our old house. I just had to find the right box. Having done that, which involved moving just about all of the boxes in the pile, I discovered, because of course I did, that the batteries in the torch were flat. It was a decent quality mag light with an adjustable beam and it took D-cells which I knew we had none of. You tend to keep AA and AAA batteries around the house but not any other kind. No way was I going up into that crawl space and potentially encountering what might be living up there in the dark and so a trip to the shops was necessitated. I went back downstairs to get the car key. That was quick, said Grace, who was cleaning the conservatory windows using a step stool she'd found in the kitchen. A big job. Not even close, I said. The good news is that the loft has a ladder. The bad news is there's no light and the torch needs batteries. Oh, are you going out? She saw that I was putting on my jacket, the one with the wallet in it. 
Yeah, I need some D-cells. Anything else? I was turning to the door. Wait, she said. Give me a couple of minutes and I'll come with you. I sat down on the couch and reached for my e-reader. With the best will in the world, Grace was not going to be ready in a couple of minutes. To clean the window, she was wearing an old pair of dungarees that last used for a decorating session and covered in paint. And she had her hair tied back in a matruska scarf. As she ran around getting changed and tidied herself up, I called, I'm only going for batteries, you know, you don't have to come. And she called back, no, I want to, it's nice to get out occasionally, even if it's just for batteries. Couldn't argue with that. So we drove to the nearest town. Apologies again for the vagueness of that phrase, but it's really important that the true location of the house remains a secret. Once there, we wandered up and down the high street, looking in windows, sometimes going to browse in shops. I got my batteries in an actual hardware shop and on impulse bought another torch and another set of batteries. We also stopped for a slice of cake and a cup of tea. By the time we got back to the house, the afternoon was getting on and I decided to postpone the climbing of the loft ladder for another day. It was very subtle and uh, she said nothing about it, but I was starting to notice that Grace was reluctant to spend time alone in the house. This began to worry me. For a start, I didn't like thinking that she was unhappy there and that it was already the case that we'd made a horrible mistake in moving. The other thing about this was, if something was worrying her, why didn't she say anything? You'll be wondering why I didn't ask, but the truth is, it's hard to ask someone if they're afraid. Partly, that was because of the first thing. If I'd asked, are you afraid of something? And the answer had been yes, then the answer to the question have we made a horrible mistake, might also be yes. These were worms I wanted to leave in the can. Both Grace and I had by this time acknowledged to each other that there was definitely wildlife somewhere around the house. It might be in the roof space, though the sounds appeared to be coming from much closer by at night and from more than one direction. I thought about the eaves, it would be possible for something to run around there, although the way the roof interacted with the rest of the house was unusual because it looked different depending on which elevation you were looking at. On the south side, facing south I mean, there were traditional looking eaves, but on the north side there was something like a walkway between the pitched roof and the stone front of the house. This was a consequence, I suppose, of this old house being worked on at different points in history. From what Grace had been able to work out from the records, parts of the house were built around a medieval peel tower. Me neither. Whereas there were other parts from the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. And as I said before, the kitchen was less than 100 years old. The 19th century part of the house was commemorated by a medallion stone over the main entrance. You might have been forgiven for thinking this a 19th century Victorian facsimile of a Georgian Gothic house, but it did indeed mostly date from much earlier. The kitchen and conservatory were clearly later additions, the brickwork was a good but not exact match, and the style of the windows was different depending on which side of the house you were looking at. From the road there were the attractive Gothic triples, but on the south side there were plainer, Georgian-style sash windows, apart from the magnificent stained glass in the study. Anyway, I suspected something, possibly as large as a ferret, was running around in the walls or the eaves or even under the floorboards. We would have to track it down because if it was vermin it might do catastrophic damage over time. 
We had a good supply of well-seasoned firewood in the former coach house, which we decided to call the barn. The actual barn, which was now a cottage, we called the stables, which was the name on the gatepost. Our house was called the lodge, although I personally thought that a misnomer. It seemed more like a main manor house than a lodge, which you'd expect to find near a gate, wouldn't you? Some of the locals, it turned out, called the place the Tower, and it's fascinating to think of how that name came down the centuries. Anyway, the confusion over the naming is probably useful now in making it hard to find. But back to the logs. There was probably enough wood in our barn to last 20 years, and it was all good stuff. Oak, ash and burke in particular are great hardwoods for burning. It looked as if it had been there for decades too, which might have encouraged rodents to take up residence. This didn't stop me from heading down to our woodland to cut down some dead wood and bring back several carloads of branches which I cut up and put in the barn, well away from the seasoned wood, so there was no doubt. I made it my business to go down to the woods regularly and I made an effort to clean up the area, leaving more room for new growth. Progress was slow on that, but there was no hurry. As I've said, I quite liked the idea of rediscovering the traditional ways of looking after a woodland. It was after a day I'd spent down in the woods that we saw a scattering of wood chips on the floor of the morning room for the first time. And it turned out the trail led all the way through the house into the hallway and stopping by the front door. There ensued one of our rare disputes because Grace quite reasonably suspected that I was responsible, having been the one obsessively counting logs in the barn and chopping up firewood I'd collected. So... She accused me of trailing the wood chips in from the barn. Of course she did. But it was a ridiculous accusation because the sheer quantity of chips on the floor was far greater than I could have brought in on the bottom of my trainers. And the door they led to wasn't the door I'd even used. I pointed this out. Look, I can see how I might be guilty of bringing in a bit of sawdust, but these are much bigger. I'd have had to have brought a full Wellington boot in with me and scattered them about the floor long pause while she pursed her lips and did you but the tension was broken which left us with a puzzle because how on earth did this happen we could only surmise creature and said creature would have to be bigger than say a rat so the wood chips were swept up and thrown on the compost it so happened that a couple of days later we had a chance encounter with the farmer who was now the owner of the land that had once been part of the lodge estate. We described the symptoms, noises in the walls and ceilings, the wood chips on the floor. He raised one eyebrow at the wood chip story, but quickly suggested we must have a pine martin. Forgive my ignorance of nature, but I looked at Grace when he said that, because I heard martin and assumed it was some kind of bird, and Grace is a bit of a twitcher. But she was frowning, and when she saw the look on my face, she explained bit like a ferret, as you suspected. Turns out, pine martins are nocturnal mustelids and extremely rare, as in protected, even in remote spots like ours. If we saw it, it would be about 50 centimetres long, with a bushy tail about half as long again. A fully grown adult would weigh about as much as a bag of flour, about the size of a domestic cat, in other words, and bigger than the feral ferret I'd been suspecting. Also, a ferret isn't really a woodland creature, whereas the pine martin, well, it's in its name. 
The last thing worth pointing out is that the pine martin looks cuter than the ferret because it has a pale yellow coloured bib on its front. They usually live in the woods like, but they will take up residence in a barn or attic if the house is quiet like yours was, the farmer added. They don't stay in the same place for too long, mind. Very fastidious, like a clean nest. So they like to move on, and when they come back, they sweep things out. Might that explain the wood chips all over the floor? A fastidious pine martin having a bit of a tidy? Certainly it might be an explanation for the sense I got a night or so after that that someone was actually moving furniture around above my head. <laughs>